to the rise and resilience of populism in Eastern Europe. I'm Sveta Petrova, lecturer in the political science department at Columbia University. With this interview series, we seek to popularize academic research on contemporary European populism. Over the past decade, a number of European parties have become increasingly competitive in key votes. And in Eastern Europe, these parties have not only come to power, but also remained in office in consecutive elections. So in the interviews for this series, we interrogate some of the main drivers and impacts of populist mobilization in Eastern and Western Europe. The series is hosted by the European Institute at Columbia and made possible with the support of the Erasmus Plus program of the European Union. The European Commission support for the series, however, does not constitute an endorsement of its contents, which reflect the views of the interviewer and interviewee alone. Today, I'll be speaking with Dr. Moritz Meyers. He's an assistant professor in comparative politics at the Department of Political Science at Radboud University in the Netherlands. His research focuses on political representation and political party competition in the European Union. He is the initiator and the principal investigator of the Populism and Political Parties Expert Survey. His work has been published in the Journal of Politics, Comparative Political Studies, Journal of European Public Policy, Government and Opposition, Journal of Common Market Studies and Party Politics, among others. Professor Meyers, uh, hello. Hello, well, thank you very much for, for, for the invitation. Before we discuss the relationship between populism and democracy, which has been the focus of much of your recent work, let's start with your definition of populism. So in line with the work of, of other scholars uh, like Margaret uh, Canavan and Cass Midde, um, I rely and use an, an ideational conception of, of, of populism. And essentially, this conception of populism sees populism as a, as a set of ideas or, or an ideology that might be expressed in, in, in a speech or in, in a debate or maybe also in a manifesto. Um, and the central premise is, is, is the idea that the ordinary people or the pure people, the virtuous people, and they form a, a homogenous entity and share the same interests, basically. So they share what they, we call uh, the general will. Or on the other side, you have the elites. And these elites are, are seen as self-serving and self-interested. And... Um, UK political scientist Paul Taggart very nicely summarizes by the notion that for populist uh, political elites have been corrupted by political power. The populists see the distinction between the people and the elite, and this distinction is highly moralized, right? So whereas the people are good, the, the, uh, the elites are evil. And politics, therefore, is really a struggle between good and evil, between the virtuous people and the elites. Given this definition and looking at the supply side first, which European parties are more populist than others in your approach? So we see basically two clusters. One is on the far right, and most of the parties that we call populist or highly populist uh, are, are, are to be found on that uh, side of the spectrum. But there is also uh, an important uh, group of far left populist parties. So uh, in terms of the far right, um, in, in, in Western Europe, you can think about the Freedom Party, 
in the Netherlands, for instance, or um, the alter, uh, alt alternative for Deutschland, so the alternative for Germany. Um, in Germany, um, in Eastern Europe, we can think about parties like Jobbik in, in Hungary, but also parties like Attack of Vermoelde in Bulgaria. They share um, two things on, on the right. They share this idea that the people are good and the elites are essentially bad, and they have a very cultural or ethnic conception of the people. Right, so that's that typifies these far-right populist parties. On the left, however, um, there's also this anti-elite idea and this idea that the people are good, but they understand the people less as, a, as an ethnic uh, group and have a more pluralistic conception or maybe also a more civic conception of what the people is. There, they also see that there is a group of elites, political, but also uh, financial, uh, mm -hmm. perhaps that acts in such a way to the detriment of, of, of the ordinary people. So traditionally, um, party level research on populism has been very qualitative, right? So that has been so much important work by Margaret Canavan and Kas Müde and Hans-Georg Betz and um, to, to study these, these political parties in a qualitative fashion. And they've also thereby make, made use empirical but also theoretical contributions. Um, Increasingly, however, we see that pop, populism is studied in a quantitative manner, so in, in, in using statistical models. Mm -hmm. And um, one time I was writing a paper, this is the paper, a paper with Arndt Leininger on, on, on voting uh, on the effect of populist parties on electoral turnout. We actually wanted to find a authoritative list of who is actually populist. Mm -hmm. And um, this list is so hard to do. Mm -hmm. Exactly. This list now exists. It's the, it's the populist edited by Matthijs Rodin and colleagues. At the time, it didn't exist. But this struggle, asking this question, which parties in Europe are actually populist, made Andrei Zaslov, my colleague here at Repa University Nijmegen, and me to think, well, actually, it doesn't really make sense to look at all these different qualitative studies to ascertain which party is populist because sometimes scholars disagree and they say, well, the German Die Linke is populist. And I say, well, it's actually not so populist. Mm -hmm. Or the uh, Forza Italia, the party by Silvio Berlusconi, is it populist? Well, maybe it was, but it, it isn't anymore. So this is ambiguous. So what we decided to do is two things. We first of all decided to ask not to kind of decide ourselves or adjudicate ourselves among different studies, but ask, ask put the question to the experts. And we measured this using uh, our expert survey. So this is the Populism and Political Parties Expert Survey, which we did in 2018. Um, and another thing is that, well, it's maybe di pretty difficult to say this party is populist and this party is not populist. So we thought that populism is actually more a question of a degree, if there's a degree to it. So mm -hmm. it's it's a continuous uh, construct in that sense. Mm -hmm. So taking these things together, we put an expert survey on political parties to, uh, for for all 20, for 25 countries in, in Europe, including all parties. And we started measuring populism in a continuous way. And we did that also by taking all these different elements of the ideational definition of populism, um, and measuring those separately. And that allowed us to create a latent construct of populism that works very well across, across Europe. Take the case of Die Linke in Germany, which I just said, some people say it is populist, others say it's not. Well, we find it is kind of in the middle. It is hmm. 
somewhat populism. On our zero to 10 score, it scores a six, whereas let's say the highly populist uh, uh, Freedom Party in the Netherlands would score uh, nine and a half. Mm-hmm. And now turning to the demand side and the voters, um, which will be the focus of our conversation today, which voters are more populist than others? So that's a really interesting question, which actually has not been researched so much. So if people are highly populist, they vote also for populist parties. What is interesting is the question of political interest, because research has been very mixed about that. Some studies have found that populist citizens are um, are less politically interested. Mm-hmm. Um, however, others actually find that they are highly politically interested, which I think also makes a lot of sense, right? These people, they are angry at their elites for not doing their jobs properly. So it is, in that sense, a very uh, highly democratic idea, perhaps, to to, to target uh, your elites and to try to ha- hold them accountable. And we can talk about that a little bit more, because um, perhaps it might be democratic in one sense, but, but maybe not in another. Yeah, indeed, populism has been argued to have an ambivalent relationship with democracy, and some maintain that populists mobilize citizens who are not necessarily authoritarian, but rather Democrats who feel dissatisfied with the functioning of democracy, and especially with their representation, as you just suggested. What does your research suggest on this topic? So what we find is that populists are definitely um, dissatisfied with the way democracy works. Um, Yet we also see that citizens are actually quite supportive of the principle of democracy. In fact, uh, in some studies, and and it depends a little bit, but sometimes we actually see that these people who are highly populist are even more supportive of the principle of democracy than than, uh, people who are less populist. Mm -hmm. Um, So so there is not a um, this idea that populism is always bad or is always at odds with any kind of democracy um, does not hold empirically, at least at the individual level. This is kind of different if, than if you look at the, at the party level. At the party level, there is a lot of evidence that if populist parties are in government, they do things that are directly at odds with uh, liberal democracy and the rule mm-hmm. of law. We've seen um, studies that show that populist parties in, in power, they limit uh, media freedom, they target the independent judiciary and so forth. Hmm. There is a strand of research that reconciles the debate about whether populism is a threat or a corrective to democracy by pointing out that the answer depends on the conception of democracy applied, which is something that you just um, suggested as well. So for example, for some populism is a radical democracy corrective because it gives voice to social groups that are marginalized by the current elites and by constructing a common identity against the establishment. For others, populism embodies a pathology to liberal democracy by emphasizing the idea of direct representation and popular sovereignty that's pursued the the exclusion of certain groups or certain minorities. What does your research suggest on this topic? Yeah, so I think it's uh, it's completely right to say that the answer to that question depends on your conception of democracy. If we take a very minimal definition of democracy, let's say a purely electoral view of democracy, then um, it is perhaps more likely that populism can have a 
positive effect on democracy in a participatory sense, right? So maybe populists um, can entice uh, citizens who have been disillusioned with politics more to, to actually enter politics or, or to, to, to be interested in politics, to, to, to follow politics and to vote. People say, well, actually there's some issues that have been ignored. And on mm -hmm. the right, these uh, people um, have often thought, okay, well, maybe it's the issue of immigration, um, we think mainstream parties have not responded sufficiently or adequately to the to the uh, to, to the issue of immigration on the left. It might be the the, the growing power of capital, right? So populists can um, they they widen the debate and they speak about things that have been ignored in the past. So in that sense, we can say, well, populism and populist actors open up the political space and also invite um, citizens that have been previously disillusioned by politics um, to, 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 to participate more. Um, in a study with, with Arndt Leininger, um, um, uh, published in Political Studies, we actually looked at, well, how, do populist parties have an effect on, on voter turnout? What are some of the pluralist institutions that citizens with populist attitudes are supportive? What we find there actually that for Eastern Europe, there is a small but statistical, statistically significant effect of populist parties being in parliament previous to the election. So in, the, in Western Europe, this is not the case. So, um, and it is important to emphasize that the effect that we find in Central Eastern Europe is quite, quite small. So mm -hmm. there is some, but let's say limited evidence on, on, on more the party level mm -hmm. that, um, that populism can have a positive effect. Populist citizens, they are dissatisfied with democracy, but supportive of the principle of democracy. And they are generally supportive of all the key pluralist institutions of liberal democracy, um, except for the idea that political parties are necessary, right? So this is this idea that politics must be mediated by this intermediary institution, the political party, and, 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 and populists really reject this institution. They are, in that sense, they are kind of an embodiment also of this anti-party spirit that has actually been around a, a very, very long time citizens actually support the idea that the media should always be free to criticize the government and that others, uh, other opinions, people with other opinions should have a voice in society and that uh, the courts can restrict the government if it's acting beyond its powers. It is quite likely that if you do not like the government, so that's kind of your anti-government attitude, also steers your support for pluralist institutions that limit the power of the government. Mm -hmm. So that's why it's also so important to keep doing this work also in different contexts mm -hmm. um, where populist parties are in, in, in government, such as uh, in Poland or, mm -hmm. um, or, or in Hungary. Also because we see there's a very interesting recent study published in, in the journal Plus One by uh, Jungkunt and, 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 and colleagues that shows that the level of populist attitudes is also um, um, affected by whether populist parties in government or not. This also suggests that this is all very dynamic. It's mm -hmm. not a, a static um, relationship between populism and democracy. These two things are intertwined. Populism, in my opinion, is essentially a democratic idea that can have very undemocratic or let's say um, harmful effects on liberal democracy. Mm -hmm. And, 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 
therefore, it is very important to to kind of keep um, keep a close look on 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 how populism and 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 democracy interact both at the party level and among citizens. Mm-hmm. Okay, so trying to take stock so far. Citizens with populist attitudes tend to be generally supportive of the ideal of democracy. Um, And they generally embrace pluralism, including minority rights, including um, uh, uh, media and opposition freedom to criticize the the government and and generally giving others um, some voice in the political process. They're even supportive of various checks and balances, including the, the division of powers and the rights of courts to constrain the government. But where they're unhappy, Um, is that they tend to be dissatisfied with democracy, especially with the process of political representation, and they tend to be critical of political parties, right? Exactly, yeah. I wonder if populist citizens rejecting in rejecting party mediation um, also have affinity for direct forms of representation. So there is a lot of evidence that shows that uh, citizens are highly populist, are uh, much more supportive of, of uh, plebiscitory types of, of, of politics, so referendums. Mm-hmm. Um, um, we find in our study, Mr. Study with Andrei Zaslov, we find that uh, citizens reject political parties as a relevant institution for democracy, think that referendums are, 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 are very, very useful, and in generally, support a form of unconstrained majoritarianism the idea that the majority should of the if the majority of the people have an opinion they should not really be constrained by rules Mm. and what is interesting here is that there is also some inconsistency right Mm -hmm. we see that on the one hand they there is strong support for this idea of unconstrained majoritarianism at the same time when you asked the same people do you think that the court should keep the government in check? And they say, and they say yes. Right? So, mm-hmm. And that's why it's so important to repeat these kind of studies in, in contexts where populists already have taken power. How do citizens who have populist attitudes feel about pluralism in parliament and in government coalitions? They are not li- um, more likely to keep kind of to limit the number of, of parties that they think should be in, in coalition government, right? So that, that is very interesting. Um, of course, they have a clear preference for what kind of parties they prefer. They're less likely to support parties um, uh, with governing experience. But still, of course, in the Netherlands, uh, at the time of study, this was in 2017, we had populist parties in, in, in parliament. Um, now we even have uh, we have a couple of more parties in, in populist parties in parliament, but the large majority of the parties are, are, are non-populists, and still we see that a significant number of populist uh, citizens also give votes to the mainstream parties. Also suggesting that um, maybe this, this 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 theoretical idea. Of, of, of a Manichean worldview, right? What we said where the, you have the good versus the evil, this highly moralized idea of politics, that, mm-hmm. that is what, what, how, that's how we conceive of populism might also have its limits mm-hmm. um, and to the extent that if we look at how people who score highly on this, this scale of populist attitudes do not always uh, behave in such a manner. 
You're really bringing up some of the inconsistencies in the view of citizens with populist attitudes, including this uh, contradiction between support for checks and balances on the one hand and including the, the right of courts to have a say over government decisions, yet also support for unbridled majoritarian view, support for possibly... Um, parties who don't have much experience in parliament, yet we see populist voters also supporting mainstream traditional parties. What are some of the other inconsistencies um, that you see in how citizens with populist attitudes behave politically? So, I mean, I think it's important to recognize that citizens with highly populist attitudes are also um, normal citizens uh, like like you and I, and they have political views. And we know that from, from a large literature that people are also ambivalent about their political preferences. They mm. do not always have um, uh, clear uh, preferences or they might have preferences that are actually conflicting. We want less taxation, but more social security, I think is a mm -hmm. classic example. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, the same goes for, for populist citizens or citizens with highly populist, uh, that, are, that, that are highly populist. Mm -hmm. um, I think they definitely think this idea of checks and balances is, is, is a good idea. If you tell them it's good to keep the government in check, most people would agree. Uh, at the same time, they think, well, currently the people aren't heard enough. And, mm -hmm. and, and, and theoretically, that is, that is a contradiction, but um, it's not necessarily if you say, well, actually, it is good to keep them in check if they're not doing their work correctly. But if, they're, but if they would listen to the citizens who mm -hmm. have really the knowledge about how things should, should be done, mm -hmm. then perhaps it will be, this is less necessary. Mm -hmm. So um, that's why I say it's so important to look at this relationship in different contexts, but also there, of course, we should always realize that um, even if we have populist parties in government, citizens who are highly populist are still are likely to evaluate this, this, this party differently. They might not be entirely happy with how their anti-establishment um, mm -hmm. at the center of power actually plays out right now. I mean, it's very hard to be an anti-establishment political mm. uh, party if, you're, if you have become the establishment. Yeah. If you look, and this is, I think, quite apparent in the case, in the case of Poland, for instance. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. That's right. And, and another difference that you have also pointed out and which came out earlier was this difference potentially between more established and newer democracy, where these issues of political representation and contestation take on different urgency in different contexts. Exactly. And I think it's very important to recognize populism as a view um, of representation. Right? So this, it's a way of how representation is ideally done. And perhaps I think, and in that sense, I think it is a highly democratic idea. Um, maybe it is slightly naive uh, or, um, to think that um, if we'd only listen to the people, uh, mm -hmm. we'd be better off but but it but it's also hopeful in a sense right so mm -hmm. i think it's very important to to not um just cast it aside as being undemocratic undemocratic per se um because i think the 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 many of the ideas behind this are, are highly democratic and i do believe and that's my personal personal opinion that populist politics can have really detrimental effects to, to democracy and lasting detrimental effects. 
Um, and, and I think the trap, but the tragedy is, but it's so important to recognize that many people who are, are supportive of these parties, supportive of these movements, and perhaps are, 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 are in that sense also working towards the erosion of democracy are doing this out of a, out of a highly democratic spirit. Right? And, and that is a central contradiction of, 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 of populism and democracy. Geert Wilders, who's the leader, the Dutch leader of the, of the Freedom Party, a couple of years ago in parliament, he said, well, look at you parliamentarians. You are all well-educated. You have these ideas about issues like migration that are not shared by the majority of the population. This is a fake parliament because you do not represent the real Dutch people. And well, I do believe that he really thinks that is true. And incidentally, if we look at empirical research, we see that there is some truth to that. If you look at the, the represent, representation gap between the well-educated and the, or, or let's say the higher educated, theoretically uh, trained uh, citizens and vocationally trained citizens, there people with university education are represented represented better in parliament than people who are not who are who have received vocational training and this is true in the netherlands but this is basically true around the world people who are richer are better represented than people who are poorer so there is some truth to what he's to what Geert Wilder is saying so i do really believe that he thinks that some of these issues that are ignored are that these are widely shared among the population that these need to be heard of course, politicians are also strategic and politicians can also be very opportunistic. Um, and um, I think this can be particularly the case for new parties, um, mm -hmm. challenger parties that um, also thrive on um, controversy. So, um, so, of course, it's always hard to say how democratic the true spirit of these parties is and of course it's also not a, a one-dimensional question they could think well some issues um, need to be said and that have been ignored but they also um, are, are are targeting central pluralist institutions like uh, the separation of, uh, or the rule of law so um, so that's why I think well we need to keep an open mind but also always take a take a balanced picture of, of what's happening let me complicate things a little bit, um, because the ideational approach to populism, which you've adopted as well, it considers populism to be a thin-centered ideology that is hosted by either a left-wing or a right-wing ideology. And I wondered if such host ideologies have uh, uh, some effect on the populist attitudes of voters. Do they moderate them? Do they radicalize them? What interact? What is that interaction like? So in general, we see that uh, citizens who are um, um, right-wing and have helpless attitudes, that these are um, less uh, pluralist, in a sense, less for diversity, um, um, less inclusionary. And, and on the left, we see a more support for inclusionary politics, also for redistribution economic in the economic sense. Um, at the same time, um, and um, this is, of course, always the challenge to, to talk about these issues in an academic setting, because we also know that um, in, in, in the context of, of the Netherlands, in our study, we see that well, actually the left citizens and right citizens are, are, are quite similar mm. in, in, in their support for these 
uh, central liberal institutions. And in fact, sometimes the right was actually citizens on the right, populist citizens on the right were actually more supportive of these institutions. But again, mm -hmm. that can also reflect the context and this, this, this and, and, and the support for the idea that central pluralist institutions like the courts being able to limit uh, and constrain government's power is important because they are the right-wing populist citizens are, are so unhappy with what the government is doing today. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, what about the question of polarization, which makes compromise that is oftentimes essential to democratic governance very difficult? Yes, indeed. I think there have been um, many studies that have shown that the entry of a populist party has an effect on polarization. So people, uh, not just supporters of the populist uh, radical right, for instance, become more extreme, but also people who hold the opposite view. There, there's a great study in the American Journal of Political Science uh, by uh, Marcus Wagner and Dan Bischoff uh, that shows exactly this. Um, with respect to compromise, it is important to, 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 to appreciate again a, an inconsistency, but not just among populist citizens, but actually among um, most citizens, is that people think the ideal of compromise is a good one. Most people think that. Mm -hmm. Populist citizens less, are, are less likely to think this, but most citizens think it's good to compromise. But then when push comes to shove and we look at specific instances of compromise, um, and this is also what Tays Moore and Hibbing show in their book in Self-Democracy, is that actually then we don't like compromise so much. We don't like compromise on the issues we care about. Mm -hmm. In a recent paper, something I'm working on with uh, Marieken van der Velde of the Free University of Amsterdam, we're doing, we, uh, we did a survey experiment in, in Germany just uh, after the parliamentary elections uh, last year. Uh, and we presented um, citizens with different press releases in the form of, of simulated Instagram messages. What we found there is that across the board, citizens think that if their party, because it's always about the party they like, mm -hmm. if, if their party, so they're in party, so to speak, if their party accepts a compromise, people think that the party is acted in a way that is less trustful, less credible, and does a less of a good job in representing its voters. So also here, in theoretical terms, we have a contradiction between what is perhaps responsible, right? Mm -hmm. So the responsible thing to do might be to accept a compromise and, uh, and, and kind of keep track of the bigger picture and form a government. But that stands in contrast with, with, with this idea of to be responsive, to, to listen to what, what, what the people want or what citizens want. What for me is important, and I think it's been a kind, of a, a, a kind of a common thread throughout our conversation today is that, well, citizens are kind of ambivalent about many of these things. Mm -hmm. And there is some danger in that respect. And we see that also in recent research about the United States where we see that, and as we see that in practice, of course, in the Republican party that to achieve certain policy goals that they think are desirable, they're quite willing to set aside or accept um, um, erosion of democracy to some extent. And, um, and that's quite clear in the Republican Party itself. Research on the US has also shown this to be the case. Um, 
So that's kind of the danger, but there is also a hope to this because it also means that even those citizens that support parties that we think are highly undemocratic or maybe pursue things that are detrimental to uh, liberal, dem liberal democracy, they also have a democratic ideal that is not so far off from the ones um, many other uh, voters uh, 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 of mainstream parties have so so i think there is there is a danger to that but there's also hope to that mm -hmm. let me push you a little bit on this though so is it then a question of different conceptions of democracy that populist and non-populist voters and parties are currently negotiating or is it really about short-term governance versus long-term political regime change so i think it's not so much a different conception these people might have of democracy, although there is, there is some of that as well, definitely, uh, with, for instance, this idea of more support for uh, unconstrained majoritarianism. I think it's, it's more of an idea that people um, like democracy and like the way it functions and like the things we can do with it when it suits their agenda. Mm -hmm. and it suits their political agenda. Uh, in the COVID pandemic, of course, um, we've seen many governments that have had to um, impose um, measures that are in some way uh, restricting the freedom of, 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 of citizens. And these were very drastic measures. Um, no doubt they were important and necessary, of course. In some cases, there was a judiciary in courts, this happened in the Netherlands, this happened in Germany, in Bavaria recently, this happened in Belgium, where the courts said to the government, sorry, but we're overturning this uh, restriction mm -hmm. because it does not fulfill certain requirements. What I found very interesting is that people who are, I would assume normally strongly in the democratic camp out of fear for, for obviously for, for the pandemic, which is also mm -hmm. very understandable, um, were highly, highly critical of the courts intervening, saying, hey, they have no business doing that because mm -hmm. the government's doing what it's supposed to do. Mm -hmm. um, and I think in that example shows again sometimes the contradiction between certain policy preferences that you have and, and abstract democratic principles, but, and that this is a constant trade-off. But it also shows that this happens uh, not just among a subset of people who we might say, okay, this is the populist radical right voter, but also in, in kind of in the middle of society. And I think, I think that is important to, to recognize that the highly democratic principle is shared by everyone but the tendency to be sometimes slightly let's say more acceptant of liberal democratic institutions than at other times is also widely shared that's mm -hmm. that would be my hypothesis and i think that's um that realization is also important because it also shows that also when we're talking about democratic principles there is more common ground than we sometimes uh, feel. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So then maybe if I could revise the gist of your argument today, 
you see citizens embracing populism as generally supportive of democracy, even though they might have a slightly more majoritarian conceptions of it, but generally being unwilling to make the short-term policy compromises that are sometimes necessary to uphold democracy in the long term. Yeah, definitely. And I, and I think uh, political parties that are highly populist, they, they, they play with that and take advantage of that mm -hmm. um, to, to further their agenda and further their um, policy, uh, well, to, to achieve their policy goals. Mm -hmm. My final question for today, um, looking, about, looking at the responses of external actors to populist movements, I wonder, do these responses strengthen or undermine democracy? I know you've done this interesting study that looks at the responses of members of European Parliament to the issue of quality of democracy and rule of law in Hungary and Poland, uh, which are some of the poster children for populism today. What do you find there? So in this study with uh, Harman van der Veer, what we did was we looked at, um, parliament, uh, at the European Parliament, um, and we looked at motions for resolution, voting, uh, voting behavior, but also the also parliamentary questions. And we wanted to know what are the patterns of, of, of uh, members of European Parliament in, in raising the issue and voting for sanctions. Um, and what we find is that um, there are is a, a group of MEPs, members of European Parliament, that are perhaps in principle, usually in say the more democratic camp are, are willing to kind of forsake democracy or, or accept democratic erosion in Poland and Hungary for internal strategic uh, political goals. And I'm talking about the European People's Party, um, which is the, let's say the, the umbrella party for center right and Christian democratic parties in Europe well, for, for out of their own strategic interest because they wanted to, to stay a large European political party in the European Parliament. Mm -hmm. They um, accepted Orban and did not vote for sanctions. So what is essential here is that mainstream party strategies are also really key to whether populism is, is nipped in, in the bud mm -hmm. or whether it's allowed to flower. So again, we see the, this contrast between short-term policy making and long-term regime quality. Yeah, I think, I think that's a very nice conclusion, definitely. Yeah. Great. Well, Professor Mayers, thank you for joining me today. It's been a fascinating conversation about populism and democracy in Europe. We look forward to your future work in, on this topic, including the second wave of your expert survey on populism and, and political parties in Europe. Thank you very much for having me. This was the rise and resilience of populism in Eastern Europe. Special thanks to our audience for listening. We hope that you will tune in for our future interviews as well. For those and other events sponsored by the European Institute at Columbia, please visit the Institute's website, which is europe.columbia.edu. You can also follow us on Twitter at Columbia Europe.